Hello. Welcome to this week's episode of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast. My name is Jennifer Apple, and this week I bring back Hannah Cole, tax professional and artist, to the podcast. If you missed Hannah's first episode, which is episode 48, called Taxes 101 for Artists, go back and check it out. It is chock full of incredibly helpful information all about taxes. But this episode, I have Hannah back on to talk all about the concept of fuck you money and its power in granting personal agency. Now, talking about money can bring up all sorts of feelings, which is why I really love talking to Hannah because she makes it so accessible. And she herself is an artist as well, so she's there. She gets it. She's in it with us. She emphasizes the need for a personal finance plan that goes beyond budgeting and focuses on building a surplus of money. She outlines an order of operations for financial success, including establishing an emergency fund, paying off high-interest debts, the significance of investing, and utilizing tax-advantaged accounts to grow assets over time, which we go into details about. We talk about shifting our mindset around money and viewing it as the neutral tool that it is, rather than something inherently negative, so that we can empower ourselves to take charge of our financial well-being. This is one of those episodes you will absolutely want to take a pen and paper and or go back and re-listen to so that you get all of the full details. Enjoy. Hannah Cole, welcome back. Yay. (laughs) I'm so, so, so grateful that you're here and so excited to jump into this conversation. For anybody who did not listen to your prior episode, which is, for anybody flagging this, episode 48, which was Taxes 101, who are you today? Ah, um, well, happy that tax season is over. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you are. Busy season is so, it's so good to be behind me. Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm Hannah, I'm, I'm a tax pro and, um, First and foremost, I'm an artist. So I trained as a professional artist and have been one for 18 years. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm still one, although I run a tax company, which is geared towards educating creative people about like their taxes and building their fuck you money. So, oh, which is why we brought you back. The taxes episode helped so many people. Um, And we didn't get to talk about keeping and making of the money. And Mm. I feel like it's something, again, that's super taboo for most of us, for all of us, Um, but especially Mm -hmm. as us artists where we've, I'll speak for myself, have been taught and groomed into, I'd say, a scarcity mindset Mm -hmm. around what's even possible for ourselves and that there are only certain jobs or certain, you know, career paths that will make you said money. And if you don't get those, then you're not successful. Oh, the, the narratives, you know? Yeah. So I'm pumped to jump into this. Um, I'm curious how you define fuck you money and what exactly that means. Sure. Um, it's my favorite thing, <laughs> first of all. Um, I don't know about you, but like in my art career, especially in my early years, mm-hmm. um, I was in, I found myself more often than I want to admit, in situations where I felt like a lack of money gave me a real lack of power and agency, like negotiating with people, um, being in, you know, bad positions at times. And um, fuck you money is how you don't 
get stuck in positions like that. Fuck, mm. my, fuck you money is how you can leave an abusive relationship. Fuck you money is how you can leave an abusive job. It's how you can say yes to opportunities that you want to say yes to and say no to ones you want to say no to. It's, it's kind of like what gives you power. And um, I think a lot of times as creative people, we, we, you were saying like you get kind of this attitude through the ether you, th that is around you all the time, every day, so much so that it's invisible and you don't even realize how much you've internalized those attitudes until yeah. you are sort of working against your own instincts being like, oh, that's too much money for me. Oh, I'm not going to negotiate when I have this job offer. Oh, mm -hmm. you know, doing things that are sort of undercutting and undermining um, your own ability to have money um, and including like just getting on board a sort of basic personal finance plan to build a, a pile of wealth. Um, let's call it fuck you money. Um, because, you know, a, a pile of fuck you money is also it's your safety net, your oxygen mask. It's like yeah. what keeps you safe when uh, things go wrong. Are you equating fuck you money to savings or are you equating it to your perspective on the way in which you use your money, period? Well, to me, it's having enough money that you get to have all the personal agency you want. And so it can kind of be whatever format that wants to be in. Although I do often describe, I try to replace the word retirement savings with fuck you money because okay. retirement savings is the big, bad, difficult one. And it's one that, frankly, a lot of creative people discount the fact that it's even possible to have to mm -hmm. achieve. And so... We're, and, and also, like, I think because of these negative attitudes that so many of us have internalized, a lot of us don't like the idea of wealth building. It sounds a little icky, yeah. whereas fuck you money feels like the power that it genuinely is. And I think that kind of says to people out loud, like, it's about what you can do with it. Yeah. Well, I think you're naming something which, you know, if I think back to our initial conversation in our taxes episode, where it's just like already the discomfort that I had felt even just entering that conversation with you around money generally, forget even the you know stress of taxes as, as a freelance human being, mm -hmm. and just mentioning and and naming how just even talking about money still, forget even how you use it, where it comes from, all of that already is super sensitive and um, fills people with a whole bout of emotions depending on their association with it. Yeah. So there is something, you know, to be said about empowering the usage of it by calling it something that feels like it's yeah, I mean, I love when people curse. <laughs> I do it a lot, and I've been taught, told that you should probably dial that back. Um, so for me, like being able to be like, yeah, this is my fuck you money. It has like I get to like put the oomph in it that I allows me to maybe quiet the um, insecurity that I might have even just around mentioning money or even the word wealth, you know, these things yeah. that holds that weight. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm I'm here for the title. I'm here for the usage. And I would love to dive in. This is what I see because so I forgot to mention the name of my business, which is Sunlight Tax P.S. Yes. <laughs> but what I do is like, because I, I have a tax practice and I see people's money, I mean, I like literally see what people are making, right? Mm -hmm. And I get to sort of counsel them and be there in that sensitive moment. I see a lot of patterns. So um, something that I have observed is that your attitude towards money, like money is a tool, 
Money has no agency of its own. It is simply an amplifier of whoever's holding it, right? Just like a hammer, right? And you can build a house with a hammer or you can destroy a house with a hammer. Mm -hmm. You could do great things with money and you can do terrible things with money, right? Like the money itself isn't good or bad. Yeah, Um, It's just an instrument. And I think what happens when you're in a world that is trying to underpay you perpetually mm-hmm. and like, oh, we don't have budget for that, blah, blah, blah. I mean, um, and you just get around that sort of scarcity world all the time. It's really easy to get out of balance with that money is neutral position. And you can start to feel like money is negative, like yeah. money is bad. And especially when we start th- saying things like, oh, I'm you know, my integrity as an artist is more pure if I'm not trying to make, you know, decent money from my artwork, Mm. from my creative work, right? And um, so we can start equivalent, like making these false equivalents. And those are never true. Money is still just a tool. Um, And so I just, I think that because we exist in this world, we can get that sort of like neutral position out of balance and we can start thinking of money as the bad guy. Yeah. Once you have an attitude in your body about money being the bad guy, you're going to undercut your every possible chance at having it. <laughs> yeah. No, but you're, you're tapping hard. into that. It's, yeah, it's the narrative. It really is. You know, even you talking about it and mentioning it in that way, it's like, oh, yeah, no, no, we've associated it as something that holds weight in any capacity, power or otherwise. It's like, no, you could use it mm-hmm. in that way or mm-hmm. not. You could choose to give your money to charity or not. (laughs) You can choose how to use it. Yeah. Totally. I mean, one of my favorite examples of a rich-ass creative woman is Dolly Parton. Oh, my God. I live in Appalachia, so she is basically the patron saint of of this part of the world. But um, (laughs) I mean, I kid you not, you could buy like Dolly votive candles. Obsessed. (laughs) I mean, I Um, might at this point in my life. But she... You know, she, her, the payment for her birth, when she was born, her dad paid for the midwife with a sack of cornmeal. I mean, they were that poor. They lived like all these kids in a one bedroom. And I've seen, I've seen a reproduction of the cabinet, Dollywood. Mm-hmm. And she, and her dad was illiterate. And so her mission in life has been like reading and education. And like she started a book program where anyone, regardless of income, you can sign up and you can get a book a month sent to your kid. She has, she pays for college for everyone from her hometown. She established Dollywood in Gatlinburg. And like, if you've ever been to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, you know that the jobs are there. (laughs) Like she brought (laughs) a, a lot to a very tiny little place. So, you know, I mean, like that is an example of, and then Oh, and then COVID happened. Oh my God. Yes. She funded. And and she was like, here's a million dollars for the vaccine. Just take Mm -hmm. it. And she like on, you know, on camera got hers in Tennessee and that was a really big deal. So like, that's a lady who got super rich from her creative work, really did a lot of, you know, the stuff around the self-worth stuff around like leaving a partner who was, who didn't want her to outshine him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, she's, She's done all those like amazing things. I guess that is why she's the patron saint. Yeah. <laughs> she's done so much good with her money. So, I mean, like, of course, you can hold up a lot of examples of real dicks yes. um, who do terrible things with their money. But I also think like it's nice to locate the good ones and there are good ones. And why not you? 
you know, yeah. like why not, why not creative people who, who feel that integrity is important? Like, in fact, I can't think of a crowd of people I want more to have money. Yeah. So you've changed your mindset. We know that money is this neutral thing and we get to choose how we want to yield it, create it, make it, all of it. What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think there's sort of two, two threads. The first one is just establishing a basic personal finance plan. Um, personal finance is boring, simple, and it doesn't really change. So it's not that hard to learn. And once you know the order of operations and the basic things you need, you're kind of set, right? So it's not like you have to keep on educating yourself on this. When you talk um, about personal finances, are you talking about creating a budget for yourself and recognizing I am spending X on housing, I'm spending X on utilities and X on toiletries and X on groceries? Or are you talking about this from a different perspective? Yeah, it's a little different. So what I'm talking about is when you have dollars, what do you do with them? Um, so I'm not quite talking about budget. I'm actually talking about what do you do with your surplus dollars? Okay. So Rule number one, and this is going to sound so obvious it's stupid, but <laughs> rule number one, spend less than you earn. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard one. I mean, it's not like I can say it and you can know it. It might still be hard to do it, but that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. If more money is going out the door every month than it's coming in, you are in trouble and you're building a bigger pile of trouble. But once you get to the point of having, you know, spending less than you bring in. So then with those dollars that you still have, what do you do with them? Yeah. What I'm talking about is like an order of operations. So I can just run down it real quick. Yeah, let's run it down. So order of operations is number one, emergency fund. Um, the emergency fund is really important. You want three to six months of living expenses. And sometimes if you're freelance or your job is kind of unsteady, you know, creative people, this is often the case, you may want as much as a year of um, living expenses saved up in an account that you can kind of access where it's not going to be, you know, not in a CD where you can't touch it, for example. Um, so that is really important because that is how you can pay first, last, and security on a new apartment if you suddenly have to, like, leave an abusive partner um, or you know, if you get hit by a truck and you have medical bills or, you know, whatever, it's, it's the sort of, what do you, shit goes really wrong. This is the fund that makes sure you don't become homeless. I know that, that sounds a little scary saying it that way, but it kind of, that kind of is what it is. Um, so emergency fund is first, then is like you putting money towards stuff. So then the second one is paying off debt. Debt is a whole world. Um, but basic sort of quick version is high interest debt you pay off first and you want to pay it off in order of how high the interest. So credit cards are kind of the most notoriously high interest. And in general, you want to avoid having credit card debt if you can. Mm -hmm. Then you kind of work your way down the interest rates and you're paying off your debt in those order. Um, if you have a loan that's got super good, super low interest rate, that's a lot less urgent to pay off. And in fact, it may the balance may shift there where it may be worth it to you to have that working capital to invest in things in your life that move you forward. Um, and so that's not as urgent. Um, different people would tell you different interest rates where that kind of breaks. 
maybe 4%, maybe 5%, uh, somewhere in there. But that could flex depending on the economic environment. But interest rates in the 8, 10, 12, 20, 25%, those are what you want to pay off as quickly as you can or not amass in the first place. Mm -hmm. After that, then then you can start investing. (laughs) I'm skipping over health insurance, which is actually another big one. So health insurance actually fits in there sort of in the emergency fund. And that is really for the same reason, because health disasters are the number one cause of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. That's a gross fact about our country. I'm not proud of having to say that. No, but there you go. Um, so that's true mm-hmm. and real. And then, but then on the sort of, then on the moving forward side, then there's, um, then there's the investing part. So then basically once you've paid off debt, which is taking compound interest and growing your debt, investing is the opposite where it takes compound interest and it grows your assets and it actually makes your money start working harder for you. Um, And this is where you can take advantage of all the stuff that we have in a capitalist system because that's that's capital. That's you having capital. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Once once capital is involved, it's to your benefit. Um, So basic investment strategy um, and having your money in a sort of like well-balanced portfolio with, you know, an assessment of your own personal risk level, but basically invested. So it's growing. That's what you want. I'm really just giving you broad strokes here and there can, you know, we can dig in and have more subtlety, but basically it is an order of operations. Okay. First emergency fund, get that savings in the emergency fund until it's all there, right? Three to six months. What does all mean? Like, well, three three to six months of emergency expense of your living expenses, okay. like rent, utilities. What what do you need an, to get by for a month? You need okay. three to six months of that in something relatively liquid. In other words, when I say liquid, I mean that you could get the cash out if you needed to. Got it. High interest savings account would be great. Um, money market fund, that kind of thing. Those that'd be a great place to park that money. Okay. But it's basically cash, so that if a disaster happens, you can deal with it and not, right. you know lose your living situation. Yeah. So that, then you start paying off the debt. Yes. So it is like that. You're not giving, you're not funding all four buckets at the same time. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So assuming this person has filled up their emergency fund and now they're tackling their debt, Mm -hmm. this could potentially take a really long time if they've been Mm -hmm. living a certain way or below their means or life has really thrown them a really bad hand or they didn't, you know, or they didn't know enough and now they're, whatever the situation is, Mm -hmm. I imagine the paying off of this debt could take a while. Does that mean that they should then hold off on investing anything until that point? Or is it, again, like we just really want to dip in one spot at a time? Well, I'll tell you why the logic says to do that, and you can let the logic answer your question. So if you have a credit card and you're getting charged 18, 20% interest on that, Mm -hmm. and you've got whatever, $10,000 of credit card debt, um, and you're being charged 20% interest, well, on the other side, later down this order of operations is investing, and, and you want that, and we could talk, and I'm excited to talk about that. When you're investing, your returns are going to go up and down. They're going to fluctuate, although they're going to have a general trajectory that is up, even though there'll be raises and dips, heights and dips. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it should be generally headed up and historic return of, you know, stock market indices is a, about 8%. That's like a commonly agreed upon rate of return from, you know, a basket of diversified stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, so 8% is how your money can grow. You sort of, you can use that in your calculations as sort of a baseline expectation of how much your money is likely to grow when it's invested. Passively. Well, you have- without you being like doing much to it, as in you've invested it and let it sit, you're saying? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just like I buy, you know, index funds, I uh, S&P 500 index funds, and I'm just ha- buy and hold. Right. <laughs> just let it sit there. Yep. Do nothing. And let them ride. Yeah. So it's growing at roughly 8%. Now, that's not a guarantee. Every year, it's not giving you 8%. This year, it might go down 3%. Next year, it goes up 10 It's going to be rocky. But if we assume 8% and we're averaging – Think about that credit card debt. That's compound interest that is in the negative. It's making your debt bigger with compound interest every year. That is far more urgent of a priority than investing to get 8% because that 8% is not beating your 20% compounding interest of your debt. This is why the debt comes first. Got it. So it might take a couple years, but until we get that back to neutral, it has to take priority because it's dipping you into the negative for far too long and in a deeper, greater way. It's eating away your wealth. And so this is why credit card debt is so particularly nasty. It's Mm -hmm. eating away your future. Yeah. I just want to offer like as we continue getting into the weeds around all of this for anybody who is listening, who is like feeling like, oh no, or oh gosh, or whatever, to really just like honor what is coming up in your experience. And I guess I want to ask you is like when somebody is beginning to to really look at their finances or in this kind of way so that they can get to the place where they have this fuck you money. Mm-hmm. When all of the feelings come up around it, how do you remain positive when it starts to feel really scary and bleak? Yeah. Um, that's a good and a hard question. I do think it's important. Um, you know, comparing yourselves to others is always going to be a path to misery. So I would go easy on that. Getting a baseline of sort of where you're at is actually, although it's such a painful thing that a lot of people avoid it, they don't want to think about it, but actually getting, you know, your numbers are very similar. So like taking an assessment of where you're really at, looking at it, knowing what it is. Mm-hmm. Some people never look and they keep incurring credit card debt, for example, or even, you know, degree after a degree student loan debt. Um, I mean, I don't find people collect degrees that much, but some people yeah. do. But like when you're amassing debt and amassing debt because you really have never like looked at your numbers to assess yeah. your situation, some people continue to avoid and continue to make the problem worse. So actually, I think it's really, really important for people to give themselves a lot of grace and space when they just look, because actually that is the very hardest step. Yeah. Once you get an assessment of where your current position is, accept the fact that just even facing it may be quite painful, um, but that that's why it's the hardest step. And yeah. so once you've done that, you've actually done the hard part. The rest is more of a to-do list. 
and like an organizational thing. Yeah, I think it's – yeah, it's knowledge is power. And the more you choose to put the blinders on, you can't know what's actually happening. And if you yeah. know what's happening, then you get to make the choice. If anything, it's giving you more agency because now you know if you want to do anything about it or not. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's giving you the option and the choice to then decide, okay, do I like this? Do I not? Does this feel good? Does it not? Do I want to deal mm-hmm. with this now or later? You get to yeah. then have that. And I don't, I'm a huge fan of giving myself as much agency as I possibly can, especially in a world that doesn't give it to me. Absolutely. And oh my gosh, I mean, I just I just want to stand here and say that uh, I, I have felt so much of this pain myself. Yeah. I mean, this is very personal to me because like I I have such deep memories of like being a young artist and having you know, like being proud of my ability to get by on virtually nothing. I mean, I remember a summer where I sold one painting and I was determined to be able to live on that sale for the whole summer so that I could be in the studio and not have to sort of tie myself to a job that would require me not to be in the studio. So I only had to get through three months, but I had this tiny budget. And like one of the decisions I made was to give up fruit. Like, oh my God. It was that extreme. I was like, yeah. I'm eating beans yeah. and carrots. Like, that's what I'm going to live on. <laughs> and I didn't drink. Yeah. I mean, it was like pretty hardcore, but it was a choice that I was making to try and do this thing. I will also say when I had a baby, I totally flipped my world on its head, my economic world on its head. Yeah. Because things that I was willing to do, sacrifices I was willing to make for myself, I just felt I wasn't willing to do that on behalf of a child. And so it, that was probably a harder moment for me economically than literally like living on no alcohol and no fruit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, because you're responsible for another human being, you know, and Mm -hmm. we can make these choices for ourselves, but it's different to make that decision for somebody else. Absolutely. Totally. Have you been using the same monologue for years and could use a new piece? Are you applying to BA, BFA, or MFA programs and need a monologue for that process? Are you someone who simply has no idea where to search for monologues? Well, lucky for you, I do what is called monologue sourcing, in which I find monologues specifically chosen for you. So many artists use pieces based off external labeling for types and roles rather than find pieces sharing who they really are and what speaks to them. So we'll meet virtually together. You share who you are as a human, what you love, your dislikes, your values, beliefs, family, friends, love, politics, you name it. I will help guide you through this. And then I go off on my own and find you monologues chosen just for you that fit like a glove. I've been doing monologue sourcing for years as an extension of the coaching I do with artists, and I have found pieces in this way for over hundreds of artists thus far. So if you are someone who wants to feel empowered about the monologues you bring into rooms and use for auditions, I would love to help you find them. And because you are a dedicated listener of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast, I want to provide you with a custom link to an exclusive rate when you check out today. Head to empoweredartistcollective.com slash podcast promo to register. That's empoweredartistcollective.com slash podcast promo right now. I cannot wait to help you find monologues you absolutely adore. 
Okay. So we have your emergency fund. You have your debt. You have your investing stuff. Can we move there? I know this yeah. is, you're not like a stockbroker and like a financial advisor who's going to be like investing my things for me. But I'm curious just to like, you know, there's stuff that's floated around, you know, you have like crypto and you have Bitcoin and you have stocks and you have all these like buzzwords that I think people hear and associate with what it means to invest their money. I'm curious for you to share what you mean when you say investing. Sure. Um, this would probably be a good moment for me to say that nothing I say today is going, should be taken as individual financial advice or tax <laughs> advice. <laughs> um, this is for education and entertainment only. There um, you go. Okay. Um, yeah, you said crypto and I cannot help but say like, if you want to gamble, you can do it. If you have mm -hmm. fun gambling, that is okay. But I don't, I personally do not treat crypto like it's an investment. There are a lot of people who want to argue with me over that, but facts are on my side. <laughs> I'm just going to put it that way. Yeah. So um, I'm not talking about crypto at all when I talk about okay. investing. That is not even on the table for me. Um, so when I'm talking about investing, I am talking about, well, I will say this, like I teach, I, I have like a program where I do, you know, it's. One, one part of it is like getting organized for bookkeeping and taxes and paying quarterly taxes. The other half is about developing fuck you money. And so I teach this thing called the power triangle. Mm -hmm. And the power triangle is basically like a three-part system to building your wealth. And the three parts are one, tax planning, which the much sexier way to think of that is finding your hidden money or finding your lazy money. So like sort of doing and you know tax planning is typically a thing you do just once a year like november december end of the year where you kind of look at where you are at for that year and you can do some assessments and there's a little bit of wiggle room to make some decisions for the rest of that tax year to potentially lower your taxes for the year and to kind of stash more money into tax advantaged accounts so mm -hmm. That's one, that's sort of like finding the money that you already have, but that isn't like working hard and making it work hard. Okay. That's the part one. Part two is um, using tax advantaged accounts. This is something that is like, you know, a superpower of a tax person because the whole point is like, it's the tax savings. That's the big deal. When you invest through the container of a tax advantaged account, your money grows faster. What are you referring to? Yeah. So... Basically, the U.S. government has set up all kinds of um, tax shelters, legal tax shelters, for you in order to incentivize the U.S. Uh, taxpayer to fund hard to save for like big ticket things. The big, the big baddie is retirement savings. Um, and so you might recognize those accounts are your IRA, traditional or Roth. Solo 401k, SEP IRA, those are retirement accounts that are tax advantaged where, you know, it's a container. A tax advantaged account is a container. It's not an investment choice at all. It's like a door you walk your money into and inside there you have whatever investments you want. Mm -hmm. So the investment decision is actually separate um, from the container you put the investments inside of the tax, but it's like a just trying to think. I really think in metaphors. <laughs> I love it. Great. It's like the tax advantaged account is like a faster car. 
you know, you can like put your money in an old jalopy and it'll mm -hmm. still go somewhere. But if you put it in a, um, in an IRA or a solo 401k, it's just going to go faster. It's going to go down the HOV lane and it's going to get great gas mileage. And you are saying that these are possible for mm -hmm. freelance artists who aren't totally. affiliated with an employer. Correct, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. So my last point on the triangle is just investing. That, that's it. Yeah. So, but, but I like to incorporate those other two components of it because they make it go faster. <laughs> and who yeah. doesn't, isn't that what you want? It's like you don't need as much money as you might otherwise need. We'll put a pin in the investing for a second, which we'll double back to. But just so that we can close the door on these tax advantage accounts, Mm -hmm. um, let's say somebody, yeah, is, you know, working in this waiter situation and they, their employer doesn't pay into health benefits and it doesn't pay into, you know, a retirement plan, but said waiter wants to create one for themselves. Is this something that you talk to a tax person with? Do you like deal with the IRS? Do you create one on your, like, is you just file it and you call it a day or do you decide, how do you decide you want that one versus the set one? Or how do you like, where do you, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. How do you do it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you have to kind of know what the options are. Internet research can do this for you. A program like mine can do it with a little more mm -hmm. handholding, but you know, you can do it. You can do it on your own. You can do it with the IRS website. You can do it with nerd wallet articles. Um, you can do it through my website. Um, but basically you want to get a sense of what the types of accounts are and which one will work best for you. So a freelancer who's, you know, maybe um, going to auditions, supporting themselves, waiting tables, for example, that kind of a person who's not an employee anywhere and doesn't have workplace benefits, um, you could probably get yourself a health savings account, an HSA. Um, those have about a $3,800 limit. I think it's $3,850 for 2023 that you could put in without paying tax on. Um, and when you use it for qualified healthcare expenses, you also don't pay tax. So in other words, putting money into that box or that like fast car um, just makes that money more like kind of bigger and more uh, powerful money mm -hmm. than if you just were paying out of pocket, not through an HSA. Um, so just as one example of a tax shelter you could use as an independent person, you can put money into yeah. a health savings account if you have a high deductible healthcare plan. Um, that's a pairing, like that's a deliberate pairing that the government has set up. Um, so yeah. those are great. And you're allowed to invest the money that's inside the HSA. So you put your $3,800. Um, so this is called a health savings account, an HSA, and you put your money inside of one. Um, you can, I'm trying to think of how you open one. You know, Google will answer that question. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I was going to say, in my mind, I'm like already like, these are, the, I mean, I guess the, if we wanted to help feed into Google, are we mm -hmm. saying what is the best, you know, tax advantage account for a freelancer? Are we saying what is a specific account that is best to open to do X type of thing for my money? Like, how can we use Google for this if we don't choose to work hands-on with you? Sure. I mean, I'm just giving an example of an HSA great specifically. The yeah. retirement ones I can I can answer more easily. Great. Let's do that. Um, so a retirement account, you've got um you've got actually quite a lot of options. Um most people can access an IRA, which stands for an individual retirement arrangement. Um the I, the individual, means it is outside of your workplace. 
So even if you are an employee, if your income is below a certain threshold, you are still allowed to put money into an IRA. That's important to know. Um, so whether you're an employee or not, you usually can access an IRA as long as you're not over the income cap and there are some. So that you just open through a brokerage. So I personally use Fidelity and it's really easy. It's like 15 minutes, maybe less. You just like make a decision. Is, am I going to do a Roth or a traditional? Call the brokerage and you say, I want to open a traditional IRA. And then you just transfer the money in there and you're done. Wow. What's the difference between a Roth and a traditional for the individual person? Like how does one benefit you versus the other? Yeah, it's a good question. So this actually speaks to sort of the mechanics of how the tax shelter works. So I'll give an example of a totally non-tax sheltered investment vehicle to show you how it works when the full tax is applied. And then I'll show you how this tax shelter works versus this one. Great. So the non-tax sheltered like brokerage investment account, I call Fidelity and I open, you know, I say, I want to buy some stocks, buy some index funds. Um, and I do that in a brokerage account. Um, and so that basically brokerage account means an account where you can have your money in investments. So what you would do is I would be putting money in there that is income, money that I've earned, right? Now, money that I've earned is subject to income tax. So the money that's going in there is going to be less than a full dollar because it's subject to tax every year. Mm -hmm. So that's how, so when I put the money in, that's money that has been taxed. Right Now, the money sits in the account. I am a huge fan of buy and hold, not an active trader. I'm just going to let it sit there for pretty much as long as I possibly can. Right. So maybe 20 years later, I decide, okay, I'm going to cash out some of the money and I take it out. And at that point, I will pay capital gains on the increase in money mm -hmm. that I had. The original money I put in there will not be taxed um, because I've already paid my one-time tax on that. But the gains that I made over the capital contribution, the mm -hmm. gains are taxed. And hopefully that's a ton. Right. Yeah. <laughs> At 8% compound annual interest, your money doubles every nine years. So, hopefully. I mean, hopefully it's a ton in that, like, you get all that money, and hopefully it's a ton in that, like, you know, you don't have to pay as many taxes as so, like, your taxes on it. But, like, I hear, I hear that yes, we want to, we want to pay in order to retrieve. So, yeah. right. I, I have to remind people sometimes, like, making money is good. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. You're paying higher taxes, but you're making money. Correct. Remember that part. Correct. Um, so you pay capital gains when you, so you paid income tax going in and then you pay capital gains when you take the gains out. Okay. That's normal, non-tax sheltered. Okay. So a Roth and a traditional IRA basically each do something at the opposite end of that transaction. So a traditional IRA, the limit for 2023 is an individual can put $6,500 into one. So let's say I put the max in this year, $6,500 into a traditional IRA. Well, that is going to not be taxed. So the, the traditional IRA sets up a tax shelter on the front end. So I will actually report my contribution to my traditional IRA on my 2023 taxes. And in so doing, my income for 2023 will drop by $6,500. So it's going to drop dollar for dollar every dollar I put into that traditional IRA. That's my tax shelter. So I will pay income tax on $6,500 less than I actually made 
because of that tax shelter, you see. So that's the savings. Whatever tax I would have paid on $6,500, that's what I save. Because and you put it into that shelter. Because I put it into a traditional IRA. So I've done the math, you know, someone in a, like a, I can't, maybe can't name the tax bracket off the top of my head, 20, 22% tax bracket would save about $1,400 by doing okay. that, which is, you know, better than a poke in the eye. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it's a thousand four hundred dollars more than no a thousand four hundred. You didn't have right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Free money from the government is what mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. So that's a traditional IRA. When you take the money out of a traditional IRA, so you put it in the same brokerage account. I'm still going to call Fidelity. Put right. it in a brokerage account, except that this one's going to be called a traditional IRA. My money's still invested. Could be invested in exactly the same thing. When I take it out my gains are now going to be taxed actually at my ordinary income tax rate. It's a little different from the capital gains I'm paying in brokerage, but remember I saved ordinary income tax going in. Mm -hmm. So I pay it coming out. Got it. So I would have paid tax on both ends if it had been a regular account, but here I only pay it on one end. Okay. Now the Roth IRA goes the other way. When you put money in a Roth, you don't bother reporting it on this year's tax return because it doesn't do anything for you this year but the Roth gives you a future benefit. So you put your $6,500 max into a Roth, it grows. And then when you take the money um, out, you don't pay any tax at all, absolutely tax-free, which is pretty beautiful because you're saving an unknown future tax rate, right? So what is the catch on that one if you're not paying on it when you put it in and you're not paying when you take it out. No, you are paying income You're paying when you put it in. It goes in Got right? it. Got it. There's no tax benefit on the front end. You don't report that 6,500 Roth contribution on your tax return, or Got you it. can, but the effect is nothing. It does not subtract off your taxable income. Got you it. pay tax on that income. So, so it's one is the going in that you pay. The other mm -hmm. one is the going out that you pay. And you're just kind of- assessing which of those you are more comfortable with in your current life or yes. your future life to make the choice. Yeah. So I I have a whole podcast episode about this issue. Great. Um, oh yeah, we forgot to plug that here too, y'all. <laughs> Just like I'm making Hannah have this conversation in this in this little box over here, but um, Hannah literally has a whole podcast all about all these topics individually if you want to do a deep dive. So go listen. <laughs> yeah. The Sunlight Podcast. Um, but I'll I'll give you the I'll give you the funny part of that episode. My ultimate thesis is it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Great. And we're done here. <laughs> Just do it. Like pick one. Okay. So to me, like, you know, there's some people I think can be an avoidance mechanism to sort of like stress over certain details. Mm -hmm. The fact is, like, are you maxing one out? If the answer is yes, okay, I give you permission to stress about that decision. If you're not yet, hold your stress for how do I max this out? And I Is don't... it worth just picking one and sticking to it or is it worth splitting and doing both? So the $6,500 limit in an IRA specifically, that's a limit that goes up a little bit each year. Mm -hmm. um, that can be split between a Roth and a traditional or it can go all into one, all into the other. Um, and you can actually toggle back and forth. You One year use a Roth, one year use traditional. You can go back and forth. And that's actually not a bad strategy for a freelancer because it, ha you know, <laughs> I'm sure you know this, Jennifer, our income can be really rocky, right? right like that's what I'm thinking, where it's like one year you actually need that money to assist mm -hmm. you and one year you're like, 
that's okay. Let me just, I'll deal with it when I deal with it. And I wonder about that as, so it's not an irresponsible thing to invest in both in a more maybe splitsies situation rather than going all in on one format. Yeah, no, it's not irresponsible at all. It's totally fine. And you can, I often advise clients to kind of pick the one that is the best advantage for them in the given year or that makes the most sense. So just make a year by year decision. So I personally maintain two, one Roth account and one traditional account, and I'll just toggle back and forth. Like if I have money and, um, you know, if you're in a low tax year, if your income tax bracket is low because you didn't make a lot of income, but you have enough cash to max out that account, Roth is great because you're paying all the tax you'll ever pay and it's pretty low, right? If you're in a high tax mm-hmm. year, you might want to use that to to have a traditional contribution because you'll save taxes this year in a year where your taxes might be harder to swallow. Um yeah. There are personal finance gurus like um, Susie Orman, who, I mean, props, she's like the OG, but she she's a little shamey for my taste, but I learned a lot from her. Yeah. But she, she says everyone should always use a Roth and she's very black and white about it. And I understand her logic. Her logic is if you're, you know, she would say, if you're financially responsible, you should be in a position where you can do this, blah, 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 shame, shame, shame. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have this awesome benefit at the end. But the fact is, in people's life, what I actually see with like real human beings is that shit happens and you don't know what's coming and you can get an unexpected tax bill and you can't manage it and you could really use whatever help you can get. And so using a traditional IRA contribution to lower your taxes this year can be the difference between you putting money in this year and not at all. So I'm all for be kind to yourself. Yeah. This was so helpful on the little detour for these tax advantage accounts. So thank you for going there. And now I want to come back to investing. <laughs> okay. So again, we've ruled out crypto because uh, gambling. And so what are we referring to? Sure. So when I say investing, I really mean something pretty basic. I mean a portfolio well diversified of stocks and bonds. Okay. That's pretty much it. There's, um, I'll say this about learning how to invest. Um, There are some basic principles you need to understand. Actually, one of them is personal finance. That order of operations I gave you in the beginning, that is actually the first step to learning how to invest. Because one of the most important things to know about investing is if you don't have your emergency fund yet, don't invest yet. (laughs) You need the cash. Yeah. Um, But it's not, it's like, you know, is a little bit of education, but you do not need to go back to school for it in order to be a good investor. Are there um, certain I, books, podcasts, research, or just or is Google still our friend? I'd be a little wary of Google unless you're really, really checking the source because there's so many people making money out of bad investment advice or and good investment advice <laughs> that you just have to really be careful who you're looking at. You don't want to be influenced. Um, you really need objective advice. Um, yeah. I learned what I know from Susie Orman. I read Susie Orman personal finance books and they were great. She does really do a good job of breaking down the basics of what you need to know to invest. I teach it myself, like in my program, mm-hmm. I have a one hour module on how to invest. It's not harder than that. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, like as when I'm teaching investing, because what I see 
is that people feel so intimidated getting started that getting started is the hard part. Well, that's why I ask, like, where are we looking? Where are people going? Because it feels like this nebulous little black hole that, you know, we're never taught and we have to now self-teach and how do we know we're learning it properly? Yes. And there's many people who really want to mansplain it to you and shame you for not knowing more than you do. And and so yep. like the amount of bullying you can experience when you try to learn it is pretty dramatic. <laughs> so yeah. to me, I think yeah. it's really important to teach it in a way that is like, um, empathetic to the fact that you have feelings and doesn't assume you know things already. Um, And I think to be a good investor, you actually really want to start with beginner's mind. Like you do not want to make assumptions because that's how you get burned. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, personally, the way that I like to teach it is like, here's your next step. Like here's a pretty good plan to start. And once you feel comfortable with that and you've made your first investment, here's how you can tune that up and make it a little better next time. Yeah. Like that's how I like to stage it because to me what I see is just that people hold back because they're like, I'll read one more article, I'll read one more book, and then I will do it. And that day never comes because there's right. literally infinity articles and books for you to Correct. learn more about investing. And if you are feeling like it is too daunting for you, who is the type of professional besides yourself or you know that you would be contacting in order to have either pay for their service or have somebody um, assist you in your portfolio or managing your portfolio? I'm going to say something counterintuitive. Great. I don't think you should. Okay. <laughs> I don't no, think you that's should. Why, yeah. person. I mean, I see, here's my perspective on this. The perf- there is an insecurity tax when you don't know how to invest. If you don't know the basic rules, and the basic rules, I promise, are not that hard. You mm-hmm. can totally do it. Um, if you're going to, like, if I'm just going to say one thing that's an easy path, I will say, like, get a personal finance book from Susie Orman. Okay. Like, I, that's where I would start. That's where I literally did start. Mm-hmm. Um, but a book is nice. And and Susie Orman, I'll say, cause she's not selling you investments, right? I don't want you learning from anyone who has skin in where your investments go. Yeah, That's not someone you should learn from. So that to me is really important. But I see that there is an insecurity tax and who's insecure about investing? Let's be honest. It's women, mm-hmm. people socialized as women. It's black and brown people. It's mm-hmm. people who don't see themselves in the people who operate the financial world. Correct. And the bullying is real. And mm-hmm. I say this as I've experienced it. Um, so I used to see before 2018, they, they changed this law in 2018, but before that, the fees paid to financial advisors were tax deductible. And so I would see them because people reported them to me to put on their tax returns. So I would see how much people were paying advisors every year for their portfolios. Now, you know, often this would be four to $6,000 a year. These fees are rarely um, explicitly stated to people. They're, they're called like, they'll say like, oh, it's, oh, it's just 0.1%. And it sounds tiny Mm -hmm. the way that they phrase it. It's very, the terminology can be very misleading. Misleading is a good word. Yeah. And people don't really know what that means. And, and nobody wants to be like, people feel intimidated to be like, could you just explain how that, what, what does 0.1 mean? Can you say what that means? Or like, 
okay, but could you say that in other words? Could you say that another time? Could you show me on my, based on my portfolio, right. how much money that means I'll spend? People don't tend to feel able to persist enough to get a sense of actually what those advisors are costing them. And they just proceed anyway, because the social pressure of being in that room is so great. And so the fact is that advisor gets their fees even when your portfolio goes down. You pay them even when they're losing money for you. You should only pay them money when the money's yeah. when it's going up, but that's not how those fees are structured. So there are good certified financial planners out there, and I'm not trying to sh throw the whole world under the bus, but I've seen a lot of shit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, because it's funny. I mean, you're you're receiving again, going back to like the facts of it, you're receiving the numbers and the numbers don't lie because they don't have feelings. They just are. And so yeah. I imagine, yeah, you're seeing actually what's happening when your clients are giving you their taxes and you're like, these are the patterns. I'm seeing it across all these types of people. I'm seeing it happening more with these kinds of people and not because mm -hmm. there's a judgment, just because of a whatever lack of empowerment or a lack of understanding or somebody's told them something and they feel like it's right. And um, you know. I think it's an interesting perspective to to be in, I would imagine, where you're, the numbers are like you learn everything about a human being. <laughs> I mean, like every like it's just like down to like what they buy. It's just really, it's really wild. I imagine if I gave you like six different, you know, tax receipts from six different people that you've never met and they're not your clients, you could literally tell me who this person is completely just from their numbers, <laughs> which I think is a really funny series. If um, I don't know if that's funny or if it's it's kind of like mind reading, but it's like in my brain, I picture that as like a TikTok series. So if anybody's listening and they want to do that, live your lives. Um, but it, you know, it just, it, the numbers don't lie and you, you learn a lot about that. So I'm here for, again, I don't have any, you know, stake in any of I don't have, I'm here to just hopefully have these conversations begin to be started and have people mm -hmm. feel a little less daunted by even just talking about money and investing and, you know, taxes and all of these things, just because I know for myself, these were stigmatized for so long. And I, I really wish that I felt more empowered younger to begin to have these conversations. Yeah. Um, okay. So you don't need a person. You're going to you're going to figure it out on your own and you will do so in a way well, that <laughs> I mean I know I know that that sounds intimidating to people. I don't I don't mean like you can never get help. I actually think it's okay to get help. I think it's okay to have a certified financial planner who is fee only. Only use fee only. That's a little sentence cool. I want you to remember. Um and they should be a certified financial planner if they are. But they will charge you a lot. That is maximum. That is top dollar. When you yeah. have somebody advising you and the Here's the thing that you will learn when you read just a basic personal finance book that covers investing is that the strategy is not that hard. And so what I see when people get advisors is that the advisor either assumes that you know the basic strategy and that you're picking them because you don't want to use it, or they want to prove that they are smarter. You know, they want to prove that they're smart. And so they want to beat the market and statistics. Again, numbers don't lie. There is no money manager out there who ever outperforms the market for more than 50% of the time, AKA a coin toss, AKA they're not beating the market. Yeah. So to me, this is why you just pick a well-diversified mix of index funds and a little bit of stocks according to your risk profile. But basically that's it. In a nutshell, that's an investment strategy and you don't need to pay someone to do that for you. In fact, they feel bad taking your money if you're going to use that strategy because 
it's kind of so simple. Yeah. So with the market being what the market is at the moment and, you know, like the big bad R recession word being thrown around and people feeling jitters about things not feeling secure in addition to already coming from an artist perspective, it being volatile. Um, what are you telling your people? How do people navigate through the jitters of these kinds of shifts? Yeah. Yeah. I First, I want to hold space for all those feelings that people may be feeling because of like new stuff about recession or banks failing, interest rates going yeah. up. It feels scary, right? And hard to orient yourself. Like, well, does this mean I should be worried? Like, it's hard to even know, right? And so I think first and foremost, just having a sense like of where you stand in the bigger economic picture, that can be reassuring. Like, well, okay, does it affect me that mid-sized banks are having some trouble right now? I'll tell you who it might affect. It might affect you if you're a small business that's looking to expand and you're at about the time where you might want to get a business loan. Because a mid-sized bank is probably who you'd get it from, and it could be harder for you. They could be tighter on their credit requirements. They are going to give you, you know, the rates are not as good right now. So if you're in that position, this will affect you, and it could be bad. If you're not in that position, and probably most people listening right now are not, it might not affect you mm-hmm. even much at all, you know? So it's like, it's it's good to have a sense of like, you know, remember that the news sells itself by triggering your emotions. Yes. So like, that's how you they get you interested in reading the New York Times. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you have to freak out, you know. So I think it's good to just um, just check in like, okay, does it actually, you know, are rising interest rates really going to affect me? Okay, groceries do legitimately cost more right now. Yeah. That affects me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm in my lease that I signed a month ago. I'm That's not going to change for a year. I'm okay there, you know. Mm-hmm. So like – Some people will be more effective than others. But it's not to say to do anything rash with your investments for sure, but certainly um, with the way in which you are spending or saving your money. Yeah. No, I think – so some reassurance is that I think it is always a good time to get a good grip on just – a good, solid personal finance strategy. We've gotten a really good start right here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like having your basic personal finances kind of in order, knowing your order of operations and working on that is a big deal. Starting your investments, using those tax advantage accounts to get your tax benefit each year, like that's a really good start. And yeah. when you have those sort of fundamentals in place, it actually just makes you have a better grip and you're much less likely to get blown away if the recession does get bad or you are one of the people who gets more affected yeah. by it. So strong personal finances, strong sort of like financial habits, they're just your friend. Mm-hmm. And recessions tend to show – I've heard this analogy that it's like when recessions happen, it's like the pool drains and you suddenly see who's been swimming without a bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me you painted that. Tell me you have a painting of that image. (laughs) I should. I should. I mean, um, but like, you know, you want, you want to be, you want to have your suit on. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or not. And then I, you know, we all learn a lot very fast in a non-judgmental way, of course, but you know. (laughs) It's true. In real life, it's not so bad. Well, I I guess it really depends. Depends on who you are. Yeah. And what pool you're in. 
and where the what pool, pool is. you're in. Exactly. Yeah, who else is in the pool? I, I think you are the bee's knees. I am so grateful yet again for this journey that we have gone on. I could probably continue talking to you about all of these little things for so much longer. Um, but I, I'm endlessly grateful for the resource that you are for the artistic community from your podcast, from the programs that you run, and also how you continuously come back here and share with our community. Um, I, I, I just, I think you're awesome. And thank you for demystifying and explaining and making a lot of these words feel accessible so that we can at least begin to have these conversations and begin to think hopefully about money as this thing that can bring you power and empower you um, as long as you are aware of its possibilities and potential. So thank you. Thanks um, so much for I, I thank you for those kind words. I really yeah. appreciate it. I also, thank Jennifer, I mean, you were doing so much for the creative community with you. this podcast and your resources. Thank so. you. Thank you. Thank you. For anybody who wants to work with you, who wants to continue picking their your brain in a way that I wasn't able to, um, for people to listen to their podcast, um, download your worksheets, all of those things, where is best for people to reach out? Yeah. So my website is kind of where everything can be found, sunlighttax.com. You can find my podcast there. You can get the free um, visual guide to your tax deductions there. Um, and actually pretty soon, in a couple of weeks, maybe before this podcast is launched, I have a private podcast series that I'll be launching. So it's got some extra juicy episodes to get you started on um, better bookkeeping, fuck you money, some really good tips. So that'll hopefully be launching pretty soon too. Awesome. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Hopefully this episode inspires you to simply begin wherever you are in your financial journey, just paying attention a little bit more using some of these resources that Hannah has outlined for us, being curious. And if maybe it's not today, then maybe tomorrow, maybe in a week, maybe in a month, maybe in a year, whenever you need it, this episode is here for you. So always feel free to come back and revisit. If you liked this episode, please like, rate, follow, and most importantly, review us. This allows us to continue having these kinds of conversations and reaching other fellow artists who are wanting to engage in this dialogue as well. And if you feel so inspired, send this episode to a friend or a colleague of yours who you think might be interested in talking about this with you. Now, if you did not like this episode, just let it all slide. If you are not yet following us on Instagram, please do so at Empowered Artist Collective, on TikTok at Empower Artist Collective, more on our website at empoweredartistcollective.com. If you are looking for some merchandise and you want to be kept in the loop in our email list, you can find those links in our show notes. As always, I am so incredibly grateful that you keep on coming back and we will be back again next week. Until then. 